Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from pioneers in the field of eating disorders who were part of actually building the modern day foundation of our field. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, and I am the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. I'm pleased to be collaborating with multiple eating disorder communities and professional organizations on this series. Our goal is to capture the narrative history of our field from those who were the pioneers building the modern foundation of our understanding of eating disorders. In this series, leaders who were there in the beginning share with us their personal and professional journeys, their experiences, reflections, and ideas that never quite get represented in this way in the standard academic publications. I've had the good fortune of training with and being mentored by and collaborating with uh, some of the experts in this program, including today's guest, Dr. Kelly bemis Batusik. Dr. bemis Batusik pursued her education at University of Minnesota, where she studied both as an undergraduate and graduate student. She completed her PhD in clinical psychology and rapidly established herself as a thought leader in the field of eating disorders and particularly anorexia nervosa and cognitive behavioral therapy. Kelly has leaned into research and training on eating disorders with fearless curiosity. She's always willing to ask the difficult questions and take the time to critically and passionately pursue answers. Dr. Vitusik is Associate Professor of Psychology at University of Hawaii, where she also serves as co-director of the Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy and Director of the Eating Disorders Program. Uh, Dr. Bemis Vitusik, we're thrilled you're here, and uh, I look forward to talking to you today. Thanks for joining Thanks. us. Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation to participate. Thanks, Kelly. So let's start in the sort of, let's start at the beginning. Um, growing up years, did you know you were going to become a psychologist? How did you get to? to Absolutely uh, not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting, but one thing that I was more confident of was that I was likely to be academic because mm -hmm. it just always seemed to suit. My family is crammed with academics and attorneys, and I figured I'd sort of put those together, go to law school, become a law professor. So both of my parents are attorneys. My mother is a judge. So that was where I figured I was headed. It interested me too. And I sort of really stumbled into psychology, seemed a reasonable major for somebody who wanted to go to law school. <laughs> you know, actually, I think there are, there's a tremendous synergy or um, what, what could I say? Parallels. There are many parallels in the study of law and the study of psychology. Uh, maybe we can get to that, particularly when you think about it from a cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. perspective, right? Mm -hmm. How we think about things. Certainly there are convergent aspects. I still wonder if I went the right or the wrong way, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. So you are, as an undergraduate, what did you study? Psychology major. So you were a psychology major as an undergrad stayed at University of Minnesota to do your doctoral work. And um, what was going on at University of Minnesota that when you were there as a clinical psychology PhD student that got you going in the direction of eating disorders? 
Actually, the direction started when I was a senior undergraduate student. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, I wrote my honors paper on anorexia nervosa, basically a review of what was in the literature and got really interested in it, interested in what mostly wasn't known about the disorder. Mm -hmm. So it, in that sense, it was really kind of an optimal time for an entry point mm -hmm. because you could read virtually everything that had been written, at least in English, mm -hmm. of, about the disorder. And I was fascinated and surprised by lots of the things that didn't seem to be known. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, you're at Minnesota, you're a senior, you write this paper on anorexia nervosa. And who is at Minnesota to mentor you or to be part of your continuing your onward journey in terms of eating disorders? Well, the, uh, the person with whom I'd done my honors thesis was Gloria Leon. Uh -huh. And I'm very grateful to her because she suggested that I send it into Psychological Bulletin, which was a sort of surprising thing to do as an uh -huh. undergraduate student. And I did, and it was accepted. So it was kind of a nice way in that sense to make an entrance in the field. When I began in graduate school, I became very interested in CBT and started working with Steve Holland. Mm -hmm. um, whose mentor was Tim Beck. So got very drawn into CBT as well. Um, Steve Holland, he'll probably say this to this day, although I don't think it's true, says he knows nothing whatsoever about eating disorders. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but he knew a great deal about everything else. And he was an um, absolutely terrific mentor in terms of shaping the way that I think and shaping the way that I work. And in also, in some ways, it was advantageous that he was perhaps not an eating disorder expert mm -hmm. because I had to go out and learn substance and content within my own specialty area on my own while still having the terrific asset of a very smart, thoughtful, clinically astute mentor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to me, uh, Steve Holland wasn't a giant and has been a giant in his own right. And uh, his capacity to generously and generatively mentor you. Uh, yes. And actually I hear from others. I think he's been quite a mentor to a number of people in our field uh, in terms of getting blending people bringing the expertise around eating disorders to the world of cognitive behavioral therapy. And how do you, how do we integrate these? How can we, what can we learn as an eating disorders community from this framework, from this model of cognitive therapy, cognitive theory, cognitive therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy? Um, what was that like at the beginning? Well, I, first of all, I want to heartily endorse your comments about Steve. He's, mm -hmm. he's not only brilliant, but incredibly generous. And one of the ways he shaped my thinking towards the areas that fascinated me within the eating disorder field was precisely the smart questions he asked me about what he didn't understand about mm -hmm. this specialty area and um, pushed and probed for the sort of what we 
often and still talk about is the mysteries of anorexia, the baffling aspects of it, what doesn't seem to make sense. Um, and, and following the Socratic questioning principle, uh -huh. but also I think genuine curiosity on his part. He uh -huh. asked lots of questions to try to better for himself decode and pushing me to, to answer and think more uh -huh. about those issues. So, so in some ways it was the fact that he didn't have an existing template for how to understand this disorder that helped shape the way I thought about it. Mm -hmm. So it made room for you to really to develop your ideas and mm -hmm. to, to bring that to the field, which, you know, starting out with a publication as a college graduate in psych, uh, psychological bulletin, that's a pretty, that's a quite a, an entry uh, it, it, it was, but I was so junior, I don't think I fully appreciated You didn't even appreciate <laughs> what it was, right? <laughs> I, I sort of thought you sent things into journals and then we take them. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in your early explorations, as you were uh, applying this more, this broad framework to anorexia nervosa in particular, do you remember how the pieces started to fit together and where you felt you were sort of leaning in and contributing most? My first interest in understanding the dynamics of the disorder, what drives the disorder, how does it function, how does it operate? It seemed to me that the field as a whole had paid very little attention to those features of the disorder that distinguish it from other forms of psychopathology. Mm -hmm. and, and that seemed quite curious because here's this disorder we keep calling baffling and mysterious. Why are we not specifically most interested in those features that set it apart? And again, as I mentioned earlier, sort of Steve's persistent questioning about, but why, but what? Mm -hmm. That made me think more about that. And also um, became very interested in the application of a cognitive behavioral model to both understanding and specifically also to treating the disorder, paying more attention to patients' own views mm -hmm. of what was going on and what had gone wrong and what had gone right mm -hmm. through the development of their disorder. Mm -hmm. So you have spent uh career thinking about these issues. And as we've discussed, the idea of this uh, series is to ask each expert to really hone in on one particular big idea that's with you today that has probably evolved over the course of your career and share with us uh, what, what you think of as you know one of the really important big ideas in eating disorders that's been central to the work that you've done. And I know you could talk about a lot of different big ideas where you've contributed, but what's one that really matters to you and, and feels central to you as you think about your work and your contribution? Well, I was actually surprised not long ago when I had to think this through in a different connection by just how much of what I've done, which seems quite 
diverse, doesn't seem to share a common theme, really does. So it's a relatively easy question for me. To Great. <laughs> um, going back to what I said um, a few moments ago, what struck me from the very beginning was that while Anorexia Universa shares space with almost everything else in DSM, bits of this, bits of that, lots of commonalities, mm -hmm. overlap in symptomatology, it's precisely the features that differentiate it from other disorders that I think not only are the most interesting, intriguing, responsible for why we persistently refer to it as mysterious, but that it's precisely those features that make a disproportionate contribution to the challenges that we face in treating it. Mm -hmm. And that's been sort of my focus from, from the beginning of taking a closer look, both systematic, thoughtful observation of the phenomenology of eating disorders, inquiry into the way that patients themselves experience the disorder, and seeking better ways to understand those phenomena. It may sound like I'm going in a different direction, but I see this as very much the same. What became more salient to me over time is that those features are unusual and mysterious only when we limit ourselves to the frame of psychopathology. If we stay within the boundary of DSM or ICD, but those um, baffling, challenging features are, are actually represented in lots of other patterns of behavior outside the DSM. So um, I got interested in to better understand those features, looking elsewhere, thinking mm -hmm. outside of the framework of psychopathology for parallels that made sense of the patterns we observe within this disorder. So sort of started a train of interest in those, I think, um, in, in many ways, functionally related phenomena. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about what they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, starvation. So mm -hmm. our, our limited, I think, still to this day, many eating disorder clinicians don't have a good appreciation for the range and complexity of starvation phenomena mm -hmm. because we don't learn enough about the normal experience of starvation in all human beings. Mm -hmm. And so I became interested in understanding more about starvation phenomenology and how that affects the dynamics that we see in connection with the disorder. I became interested in a subgroup of people who self-impose starvation for non-anorexic reasons, mm -hmm. people who practice calorie restriction for longevity, um, a group of people demographically radically different from mm -hmm. the patients we treat, but develop similar patterns in the ways they behave, the ways they think and in resistance to change in mm -hmm. their patterns of behavior. And then we'll come back to this in a bit, but then I started going much farther afield. <laughs> yeah, before we go a little further afield, I want to ask you about studying individuals who clearly don't have anorexia nervosa, 
who choose to pursue an extreme low calorie form of semi-starvation, right? Is that how you would, the term you would Mm -hmm. use um, to maintain a, a depressed weight or a low weight? What was the response by the field, the eating disorders field, as you explored that? The, the answer is virtually none. Hmm. There was virtually no response, which interested me. It seemed to me for so many reasons on so many levels, this was an obviously interesting comparison. Group. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you want to study behavioral patterns, Let's take a look at people doing the same things and their patients for different reasons. Where do they look similar? Where do they look different? Mm -hmm. Um, How do their patterns of behavior, the ways they think and how they feel differ? If you want to start scanning brains and looking at responses to, you know, appetite cues, the experience Mm -hmm. of hunger, you know, we've lamented for decades. There's no appropriate comparison group. Well, there is actually Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, there are comparison groups that allow us to control for the effects of Mm semi-starvation, not completely and entirely, which is a more complicated question, but certainly better than comparing our patients to people who are not starving. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the only reaction I really got to the series of papers we wrote on calorie restriction for longevity (laughs) was a furious response from the calorie restriction for longevity field, <laughs> not from the really? field. Who didn't yeah. want to be compared to... Terrifically offended uh, by the idea of being mm-hmm. to people with eating disorders, even though we, we certainly strove to make it um, quite clear that we were not trying to put these things together mm-hmm. as comparable forms of psychopathology. We were trying to illuminate aspects of the experience of self-imposed long-term radical dietary restriction. Right. As you pursue the study of anorexia nervosa and engage with individuals with anorexia nervosa and see this extreme behavior that, as you said, is perceived as mysterious, you started by looking at the group that doesn't have anorexia nervosa, but it's engaging in a similar extreme behavior. And then you said you went further afield. What is the, as the big idea evolved, what, what would you call this big idea? And, and how did it kind of consolidate for you? Well, well, actually it was, it wasn't, it wasn't sequential in that sense. I've, I've always been interested in starvation as a unique distinctive aspect of eating mm-hmm. disorders, not comparable to other forms of psychopathology. And I've also been interested in distinctive attitudes towards symptoms, the strong elements of not just positive reinforcement, but of actively valuing and viewing as good and desirable, the restriction of intake and suppression of weight, and all of the phenomenology that accompanies that. So, mm-hmm. you know, active efforts to increase the severity of symptoms, competitiveness, strong sense of identity with the disorder. Um, and, and so similarly, that was um, my, my dissertation in graduate school was, I don't remember the title anymore. It was 
extremely extended his dissertation right, as they go. Right. <laughs> um, but it was a comparison of functional relationships in eating disorders and anxiety disorders. And uh -huh. specifically was looking at the question of yes, strong elements of negatively reinforced avoidance behavior in eating disorders, but something else as well. So best construed as disorders of approach and avoidance, not just as avoidance disorders. Mm -hmm. So looking at those distinctive phenomena brought me to the most eccentric range of my interests, which, which is an interest in other patterns of valued, extreme, effortful behavior outside the categories we have in the DSM, mm -hmm. particularly behavior patterns that are widely viewed as commendable by the general population, at least when practiced in moderation, but that in a subgroup of people are taken to extremes. And I developed an interest in things ranging from high altitude mountaineering, mm -hmm. uh, ultra running, caving, um, <laughs> open water swimming, mm -hmm. and particularly eccentrically uh, competitive birding. Uh -huh. um, what we could learn about these valued, extremely effortful, long haul endurance based behaviors, mm -hmm. and whether there were similarities in the ways that individuals pursuing these activities come to think and feel mm -hmm. and react. And I strongly suspect that there are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So what you're saying is, okay, we all running, it's a great activity. Uh, these ultra marathoners who continue to run with all kinds of injuries are taking something that we value for health and fitness and are at a real extreme, the mountain climbers. Hiking is great. Everyone on a sunny day wants to do some hiking, but here you've got these people climbing uh, and putting their lives at risk potentially, um, and so on. Is that the idea that, that, that with these valued behaviors in many different domains, we're going to have some subgroup that's going to take the valued behavior to an extreme? Is that you're actually, you're actually putting it perfectly. Um, the, um, something that I sometimes say when I'm giving talks is that, that, this sounds simple-minded, but I don't think it is. Uh -huh. Virtually anything that some that many humans value, a subgroup of human beings will overdo. It's difficult to think of contrary examples. And, and so in that very basic sense, it's curious that we keep attaching words like baffling and mysterious and non-understandable to anorexia nervosa. Um, control over eating and weight is widely valued in our culture. And it would be astonishing if no subgroup of people egregiously overdid that behavior because we find commonalities across forms of behavior mm -hmm. that many people value. 
um, again, at least when practiced in, in moderation. So I don't think it's so baffling and, and mysterious. It would be more surprising if there were no such thing. <laughs> that is so clear when you say it and so startling in a way because the trope for anorexia nervosa is that it's mysterious, like you say, mysterious, baffling. How, why would someone do this? So what in this idea, Kelly, of moving anorexia out of a space that's so unusual and into a space that actually follows a describable pattern, um, what, what would you say, what have you learned looking across these various behaviors that would help help make it less mysterious? What is it that's less mysterious and understandable to you when you, when you bring this framework to bear? I think several things are, are potentially helpful. Uh, I'll go anecdotal here. Um, once gave a talk about my eccentric interest in extreme behaviors at an eating disorder con conference. And one of, sort of my favorite compliments I've ever received was a man came up to me afterwards he said he was middle-aged psychiatrist. He said, I've been working with eating disorders for many years now, and I've got to admit, I have never understood anorexia. Mm -hmm. I'm a guy. I understand high-altitude mountain climbing. Mm -hmm. And now I think I get it at least somewhat more than I did before. Uh -huh. It's like, that's what I'm after. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's what I'm hoping. That, that it makes, um, well, on multiple levels, I would like to make the disorder more accessible to people's understanding. More, I think it's an immensely complex disorder, but I do think it's decodable. Mm. And to the extent that we get it, more. Um, I'll just take it as a clinician, we're going to do a better job of treating it. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a better job of understanding what clients are saying, of going for the issues that are more likely to be influential to them as individuals. Another thing I think you learn is precisely what you said. When you do make a closer study of these partially comparable patterns of behavior, you do keep running into some very predictable phenomena. Mm -hmm. um, in no sense do I mean to suggest that these patterns are exactly in line. They're mm -hmm. not directly comparable. But you do find some striking regularity um, in the ways that they, well, for example, if, if, you are committed to pursuing an extremely effortful, objectively difficult and costly pattern of behavior, some very, very predictable patterns are going to emerge about the ways that you motivate yourself to continue, mm -hmm. the ways that you develop self-management contingency systems to keep the pattern of behavior going. And over time, people who ultra run and people who restrict 
come to think of what essentially was self-generated propaganda to keep them going on the path that they valued and wanted to pursue, they, um, th- the propaganda succeeds mm-hmm. over time. And so much of what we refer to as, say, the anorexic voice, the anorexic self, has precise parallels in other patterns of extreme behavior. I mean, down to the same words and phrases, motivational slogan, self-management, self-monitoring systems. And I think it's highly likely we'll do a better job of treating anorexia to the extent that we understand the function of those messages and can help patients better understand it. One question I have as you're talking, Kelly, is the cognitive piece, uh, the self-talk, the reinforcing mantras and messages tie in, right, with brain function, with um, what we learn and what becomes ritual, what becomes automatic. Uh, and so I wonder in if you have some thoughts about in your experience, uh, how you think about the most successful ways to interrupt that pattern uh, in the case of anorexia nervosa given that we know that there's sort of a whole biology that gets built to reinforce the thinking and uh, and behavior, you know, biology and behavior. Biology and and behavior and psychology. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Um, Well, one thing I've said jokingly is I think we ought to, uh, I like to propose a sort of proof of concept idea for people who are interested in introducing the latest new thing that's absolutely finally going to treat anorexia brilliantly is to ask the question about whether we think the same sort of tactic would convince somebody who was an ultra runner to go back to jogging Mm -hmm. or convince someone who is an extreme climber to go back to those hikes we all enjoy in the hills. That helps shape my thinking about what is influential. Mm-hmm. And as you alluded to earlier, I've had a long-standing interest in patients' motivational systems, which I think leads very directly to a focus on values. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding what is important and influential to this individual patient, not the same across them. Mm-hmm. Um, and working through how it is that they see what they're doing um, to redirect their focus in another direction. Um, mm-hmm. That helps shape my thinking very much about what's effective in treatment. Because if you don't deal with the overarching idea that this is a good thing for me to be doing, mm-hmm. uh, terribly costly, I've gone too far. I'm experiencing all kinds of consequences I don't like, but still um, what I'm doing is a good thing. And Mm -hmm. therefore, if I don't do it anymore, I'll 
be doing less well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the popular uh, poster for runners is some running is good, more is better, and too much is just enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So this big idea, uh, the takeaway for me is that you, over the course of decades, it's become increasingly obvious to you that anorexia nervosa will best be understood when we stop imagining that it is uniquely mysterious as a phenomenon. There are aspects of it that are unique to anorexia nervosa, but that when we begin to embrace the ways in which other extreme behaviors uh, align, that that will expand our thinking and make anorexia nervosa less mysterious. Yes. Is that accurate? Is that- That is absolutely accurate. Um, I I don't think it will provide the magic solution because I don't think there is one. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's part of understanding more clearly the dynamics of this disorder. But I think we can do better Mm -hmm. if we have a clearer appreciation of what is helps to perpetuate the disorder. Mm -hmm. I think in general, approach um, making, I'm not sure I'll say this correctly, but making anorexia more approachable, more amenable Mm -hmm. to our understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, Thinking about patients as people who've gotten caught up in pursuing something they highly value, which is extremely costly, extremely disruptive of their lives, and yet continues to be in many ways valued and important to them. Mm -hmm. As you uh, identify a number of mentors, I think you and I both recognize that early in the field, there were fewer women who were in the field. Almost none. Almost none. (laughs) What was it like being one of the very first women in the field to really uh, help shape the, an understanding of eating disorders? Um, I, I didn't feel in any way excluded because of gender. I just thought that the field was insufficiently diverse in the perspectives that were being brought to bear Mm -hmm. on these questions. Didn't particularly mind being um, unusual because, again, I grew up with a mother who was one of two women in the Stanford Law School class of 1940, whatever it was. So Uh I I didn't... um, I didn't have, I think I was lucky to be about a generation ahead psychologically mm-hmm. um, because I didn't feel that it was uh, unusual for women to be doing the kinds of things that I was interested in doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, as you enter the field, you go to this first conference, it's mostly men, uh, that is rapidly changing. You 
your senior thesis gets published, you're contributing in a very significant way to the development of the first evidence-based therapies for eating disorders, particularly anorexia nervosa. When did you realize that you were an expert in the field? Certainly it was, it was a relief and reinforcement to find that other people who I regarded as experts seemed to think that my ideas weren't entirely off base. Um, I would say in some ways I feel less an expert right now simply because there's so much work being done. I'm not on top of all of it. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know sort of everything that's going on in the numerous complexities of better understanding the, the eating disorders. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. It's, so you it's went from going backwards. But. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so you enter the field feeling new. There's a moment of expertise and then right and then it's it's not quite downhill i think maybe it's a to your i i think you're absolutely right the complexity of the field and the many different ways in which people are are understanding and working in the field of eating disorders has just um really multiplied uh, but also there's something about getting to a point of, of knowing and understanding, and that takes you to a place of not knowing and understanding, yes. right? So Kelly, as you look out over the years, are there any particular moments that are especially salient and especially meaningful to you in terms of what matters to you in your, your career and your contributions to the field? Well, it's interesting, connecting back to your question about was there a moment when I felt like I was an expert? Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the things that was very meaningful for, for me and very reinforcing to me uh, happened a number of times over the course of the career was um, when I would encounter people whose work I tremendously admired, who would say to me that I had made them think in a different way, just as they had tremendously enriched my own thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, the first such time was probably a comment, Gerald Russell came up to me after a presentation I had given in uh, Wales, very, very beginning of my career, and said in his in extremely gentlemanly kind way, said that I had made him think about something he had never thought about before, that it always sort of bothered him, but he hadn't stopped to think it through. Tremendously reinforcing, mm -hmm. <laughs> coming from someone I enormously admire. Mm -hmm. And I had subsequent experiences like that over the years, sort of the idea of people who are all focusing on this challenging, complicated disorder, um, enriching each other's ways of thinking about it. And it's quite nice when you can do your bit just here and there in the same way. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, as we think ahead to the next generation and the next generation of scholars in the field, questions that you hope they will take up? I don't think we're we're done and anywhere near done 
in understanding precisely, I certainly don't think I'm done. And I don't think the field is done in making more sense of, of this fascinating, complicated disorder. And a message I give, and I do give it directly to my students all the time, is to go outside. To better understand this disorder, go outside of the disorder, enrich yourself. Understand the ways in which it's similar and the ways in which it's different from other phenomena. I do worry a lot that, that again, I think I mentioned earlier, that we isolate ourselves too much. Mm-hmm. in the eating disorder field and, and a really <laughs> maddening repeated experience for me is having prospective students contact me and saying, oh, they're so pleased. They want to come to our program. We've got two eating disorder experts on our faculty at the University of Hawaii. They want to be able to focus right in on eating disorders and basically do nothing else mm-hmm. with the idea that somehow it would be unproductive or inefficient, at least, um, to be wasting your time on other kinds of clinical work or clinical research. And my advice is absolutely opposite. Look outside. Um, Think by analogy. Think through comparison. If you don't know other phenomena, you're not going to be able to understand what what is distinctive in this disorder bring it into relief and focus on it and and that's what i hope we'll do um very much agree with tim walsh that we have curiously neglected some of the most basic basics about this disorder that we don't know very much about behavior we don't know very much about eating patterns Um, Look outside and look basic and um, observe systematically and then think critically and creatively about what, what we observe. Terrific. Kelly, you started out saying you weren't sure whether you would pursue psychology uh, and actually expected you'd follow the, a, a career in law. Uh, as your parents had and with your mother as a judge. And as I listen, as we have our conversation today, I'm struck and have been over the years by your exquisite thoughtfulness and the ways in which you really lean in to the complexities of phenomena and take the time to get inside and take these notions and make them personal, make them, you know, owned by the people who live with them. And you've done that so masterfully today. I I really want to thank you for sharing this big idea. Uh, I have never thought of anorexia nervosa and extreme bird watchers in the (laughs) same space, but I totally get what you're saying. And you've like blown open my thinking about this ways of expanding our thinking so that we can come back around in a very specific way and in a very thoughtful way and in the way that you've modeled for all of us. So really, I thank you tremendously for joining us today. And uh, I think you've really brought big ideas for us to, to think about, to ponder and pursue. 
Thank you so much, Kathy. And thanks for inviting me to take part in this.